Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today, I have Ori Fox. Uh, he's an astronomer. He's a scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute, uh, working on the James Webb Space Telescope, which was recently launched and is producing all kinds of uh, amazing images. So, Ori, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Glad to be here. If you would, uh, tell me a bit about... Uh, the James Webb Telescope, like what, what makes it different from other land-based or, you know, the Hubble Telescope? Uh, just a quick overview for people that don't know. Sure. The James Webb Space Telescope, we call it Webb for short, or JWST. It is often coined as the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, which we've known now for over 30 years. But really, that's not entirely true. They are working in tandem because they cover completely different wavelength ranges, okay? The James Webb Space Telescope was designed to work at infrared wavelengths. And infrared corresponds 
to wavelengths just beyond the red that you see in the spectrum. It's just beyond mm. the red, right? And the reason that we designed the telescope to work in the infrared is because at the very distant parts of our universe, which is expanding, okay, the edges of the universe are expanding at the fastest speeds and the objects there are moving away from us faster than objects nearby us. And that is redshifting all of the light that is emitted normally at optical wavelengths into the infrared. And so to see to the edge of the universe, we needed an infrared telescope and it needed to be big. And that's the two things yeah. that the web brings to the table. It's big and it can observe in the infrared. Well, also too, it's location, isn't it? At what's called the Lagrange point out in space. So it's not like an earth orbit or is it outside of earth orbit? Am I correct? That is exactly right. It is outside of Earth's orbit. It is at a Lagrange point, which is sort of this uh, equilibrium point in the gravitational pull between the Earth and the sun and the moon. And the reason that we put it there is because it needs to be far enough away from Earth that the heat from Earth doesn't warm it up or contribute to the light that it sees. Because when you're looking at the infrared wavelengths, we often, on, on the ground, think of an analogy for the military heat-sensing sen goggles that the military wears at night. You can actually see the glow of human beings and at infrared wavelengths. You can see the glow of the Earth. And because you're looking in the infrared, you need everything around you to be as cold as possible. And so to do that, you need to get away from Earth. Okay, so the Lagrange point, not only is it gravitationally balanced, so the telescope will be stationary in one point in space. So the reference point won't change, if that's right. Uh, but also um, the conditions at that point are, what, essentially, essentially the, like, what, three Kelvin or so and staying at that temperature? Exactly. And the, the balance is really just a nice bonus, right? That wasn't, the primary goal was to get it away from Earth. And then once you do that, you want it in a stable place where you don't need to constantly be using fuel to keep it steady. And so by putting it at a Lagrange point, it's a great way to conserve fuel and keep your mission going for as long as possible. Um, is there any on onboard instrumentation that looks at the condition of the space that it's sitting in? Is there anything to be observed or seen at, at a Lagrange point? Or is that just a sidebar to its mission and nothing to do with uh, you know viewing other objects in space? Yeah, there's nothing, you know, there's no nearby camera to, you know, look out and, you know, not like a doorbell cam or anything like that, just to see what's happening in the local neighborhood. Um, in fact, they don't have any cameras on the web to look nearby because uh, every small additional object that you add onto a telescope of that magnitude just create potential headaches down the road. And so there's no camera that you can even deployed to look at the telescope itself to make sure that there's, you know, um, no damage or everything that um, unfolded properly. Well, could that be problematic or it just was too much of a, a trade-off and they just couldn't do it? Yeah, they debated this for years, like all things, and they decided it wasn't worth the risk. They had enough sensors and so that they were able to uh, sort of create a virtual display of every single component at every single time using all these sensors. And you know what? We don't need to worry about it anymore because the whole thing unfolded. It was a six-month 
commissioning and unfolding process and everything is working great now. And so at this point, I guess if, you know, there is a problem going forward, it's sort of, we can still use these sensors, but, you know, we're at this place of equilibrium where uh, all the moving components that we really need to worry about are within the telescope and the instruments and not, and not external uh, anymore. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I know this is getting into more physics than just the telescope itself, but um, you said the, the edges of space, the edges of the observable universe are expanding faster than, let's say, what we'd see here locally. Any, any reason that anyone's figured out as to why, like, you know, what is space expanding into or why is there this difference in the expansion rate? Yeah, it's an awesome question. And so, you know, whenever I like to tell stories in astronomy, I like to tell a little bit about the history because I think it's really important that listeners understand the way science works, right? And this goes back to a guy named Edwin Hubble, okay? That's why this guy got a telescope named after him. And what he was doing back when they started building telescopes big enough, you have to realize... (laughs) This is just incredible. A hundred years ago, in the early 1900s, we as a community, as as the world, did not really understand that there were galaxies outside of our own Milky Way galaxy. And it wasn't until the, the late 19 teens or early 1920s that it really became accepted that galaxies are outside of our own Milky Way. And a guy named Edwin Hubble started studying these galaxies one by one as he started to discover them, okay? And what he found was that when you looked at the velocity of a galaxy and the distance of the galaxy, they were correlated. What that meant was the further something was away from you, the faster it was moving. Now, the the the, the clear conclusion from that is that our universe is purely expanding, okay? Now, it's not complicated. Everyone uses a balloon analogy. I prefer a cookie analogy. If you are baking a big cookie and you have it on your oven tray and you have a row of chocolate chips and you measure the distance between all the chocolate chips, let's say it's a half an inch, and then you put it in and it bakes and the whole cookie increases in size by maybe a factor of three. Well, all of those chocolate chips are apart from each other by, you know, a factor of three, but the chocolate chips at the end are apart from the other chocolate chips at the end by more, uh, they're moving faster away from each other just because of the geometry of the cookie. Each chocolate chip is moving by another half an inch, but when you multiply that all together across the entire chocolate chip, the two chocolate chips at the end might be expanding away from each other by, you know, 20 inches or something like that, right? I'm just making up some numbers here, but the point that I'm trying to get across is that there's nothing complicated about this particular physical mechanism. Now, fast forward to the 1990s. They were still doing the same experiment that Edwin Hubble was doing back in the early 1900s. And what they found was that the the plot that Edwin Hubble made was no longer linear when you got out to further and further distances. And what they concluded from that was not only was the universe expanding, but it was actually accelerating. And that's when they coined this new term called dark energy. And we don't know what dark energy is. We do not know 
really why the universe is accelerating. There are a lot of different possible theories out there. And we are building a new telescope called the Roman Space Telescope that's going to be launched in a couple years that will hopefully constrain a lot of the different possible scenarios. For now, the web is simply going to be looking at some of these different galaxies and stars at the very edge of the universe to start building up some of the science that will eventually also be done by the Roman Space Telescope. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So if you were to put uh, James Webb and Hubble side by side, what makes the James Webb, quote-unquote, better? What are the, the metrics? The James Webb and which one? The Hubble? Let's say the Hubble or whatever is the next in line in terms of, you know, efficacy of the telescope. Like, what, what do you consider to be efficacy? Yeah, so the, the key here is not the resolution. A lot of people think a bigger telescope means bigger, better resolution. And that's true if you're comparing the same wavelength. But the web, as I mentioned in the beginning, is working at infrared wavelengths. And infrared, because it's a longer wavelength, by default, creates a worse resolution image than optical wavelengths. And so to get the same resolution as you had with Hubble in the infrared, you need a telescope as big as the web. The web is six and a half meters across, whereas the Hubble Space Telescope is two and a half meters, okay? And so you don't wait on resolution, but what you do is you open up the ability to observe in the infrared. And like I said, that's a whole new ballgame because there's all sorts of astrophysical processes, not just things that happen at the end of the universe, but there's all sorts of other infrared processes that occur, such as dust emission in, you know, new, newly formed planets, or um, you might have Stars, when they die, they explode as these huge supernova events. And we think that they're forming dust, but we've yet to confirm it. And so this is the building blocks of solar systems and planets and Earth where we are today. And so we really want to understand where that dust comes from. And so the infrared just is going to allow us to do science at a wavelength in a way that we've never done before. And it's going to revolutionize basically every field in astronomy. Would, it, would there be any point for uh, the Hubble, let's say, to focus on a particular point of space and then for the web to do the same and then overlay the images? Because you're getting, like, I guess, visual data and then you're getting infrared data from the James Webb. Would that do anything to enhance an image? Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, like I said in the beginning, they're they're really designed to work in tandem because there's a lot of different questions that we have that need both the optical and also the ultraviolet, the, the Hubble observes in the ultraviolet, but also the infrared. So for example, you know, one of the questions that we try to answer in astronomy is 
how did we get here? How did the universe form? Where did we come from? And there's two important parts of that question. And that is how do stars get born and die? And how do galaxies form and die? And we really need to understand, you know, all aspects of the life cycle of stars and galaxies to understand how humans got to where we are today and how we have our own Milky Way galaxy and our own solar system. And one of the big questions that we we really just don't understand are what were the galaxies doing, you know, when they were young, when they were first forming? And to do that, you need a complete picture of what the galaxies look like. And, and so when you look with Hubble, right, you're only covering half of the wavelengths that these galaxies are shining at. And so you only know half of what's going on. And so to get that other half of the story, you need all the rest of the light that's coming out. And so we definitely already have plans to look at, gal- at, at these newly born galaxies with both, both Hubble and, and the James Webb Space Telescope at the same time. What are other wavelengths that will be advantageous? Is there such a thing as an X-ray telescope or a, a gamma ray telescope? Like what else? If you can have your wish and throw a bunch more telescopes out there, what, what would they be able to observe? Yeah, so there's all sorts of other... Okay, so the wavelengths in astronomy cover all, all, all different possible regimes. They, they, like you said, there's neutrinos, okay? <laughs> That's all the way at the one extreme end. There are uh, gamma rays and X-rays and ultraviolet, optical, infrared, submillimeter radio, right? And microwave. And there are teams working on building telescopes across all of these different wavelengths. The, one of the next big missions that I think the community is interested in is studying the ultraviolet. We have had ultraviolet telescopes and X-ray telescopes before. These correspond to the highest energy particles that come out in astrophysics. It's very hard to generate a high energy particle, but the things that do are just some of the most exciting objects like black holes or supernovae or gamma ray bursts or tidal disruption events, you know, or active galactic nuclei, all sorts of very extreme environments in, in astronomy. And historically, we've had very focused ultraviolet and X-ray missions, and that was by the techno- technological limitations at the time. But going forward, because so many of these things that I described are happening in real time, okay, we normally think of the the universe as being old and not changing, but things are changing every night in the sky. And to capture a lot of that with these high energy events, we really need sort of like an all sky camera in the X-ray and ultraviolet. And I think that's going to be one of the next big things that, that really comes along. But like I said, we also have the Roman Space Telescope, which is designed also for one specific part of the infrared called the near infrared. And the design there is to specifically look at a type of supernova that is that is key to constraining dark energy and what it is. And, and we can do all that science in the near infrared. And let's see, what, what other exciting missions? Uh, the, the NASA just received what we call the Decadal Survey. And the Decadal Survey lists what the next super big telescope is going to be in the 2030s. 
And we're hoping that it's going to be something that is just so large. It's going to look like the Hubble to some degree in the sense that it's going to be a UV and optical telescope. But the design is going to be so large. It's going to be larger than even web. And you're going to have to unfold it in space, just like the web that we're hoping we're going to be able to see the atmospheres of Earth-like planets and really look for biosignatures of life. So there's so many different exciting science topics that we still haven't even scratched the surface of that are probably going to happen within our lifetime. Oh, what about looking at the planets in our solar system in the infrared range? You know, would that be useful for James Webb to do, or is that kind of a waste? It's better to focus it on, or, or again, there's infinite things to look at. So you want to focus on the most juicy targets in, in the universe. And that's a great question. The way it works is we have a panel every year that is composed of scientists from throughout the community all over the world. And they review proposals that are written that try to pitch their, the science as the most interesting. And so really it, it comes down to each year trying to figure out, you know, what's the most compelling science case. Um, I will say that, you know, looking at planets in other solar systems is a very popular topic right now. It's something that the web can do. They're not all Earth-like planets, but we're able to learn a lot about how planets form and evolve and learn a little bit about our own solar system. So right now, the real hot topic is looking at planets outside of our solar system. But that said, Webb just released this extraordinary image of Jupiter, and it revealed wavelengths of light coming out of Jupiter that we really have not, you know, looked at before. Different. Yeah, I saw it. It was it was really yeah. cool. It was so cool. Different wavelengths of light come from different parts of the atmosphere, and this is true even for Earth. You can imagine we have all these different clouds, right? When you look up at different layers, and they all have different temperatures. And so depending on what the temperature is of that cloud, the light comes out at a different wavelength and you're able to probe different wavelengths on our own planets. I will tell you that one of the things in our own solar system that Webb is going to really be cool, um, great at doing is studying asteroids and, and large rocks that are just whipping around uh, that we have not seen before uh, up close. <laughs> And for the first time, Webb's going to be able to track these things and see them at the very edge of our solar system and, and try to understand the types of rocks that are whizzing by as comets every now and then and, and could potentially be, you know, the seeds of life on Earth, you know, billions of, of years ago. So that's going to be fascinating. Um, but to, to directly answer your question, sure, uh, we can probably point at some planets and it will be done, but I don't think that's where... I, I think there's a lot of other missions that are, are being developed by NASA to do up-close looks at planets. And I think Webb's going to do some really cool stuff, but each year it's going to you know, come down to this uh, committee to try to determine where the most interesting science is that year. What about looking at Earth? Would there be any point in the Webb looking at Earth? You know, no, there's, no, there's nothing that the Webb's going to be able to do looking at Earth. We can't point it at Earth, as a matter of fact. Earth is too bright. It's, it would have to require the telescope to point back towards the sun, which is a big no-no. And so there's, yeah, there's really, that's just overkill. That it, it really would not be able to reveal anything new. Oh, and you can't look at the sun either? Would it burn up the optics? 
Yeah, it would just saturate all the detectors. There's heat problems. You know, we have to keep this thing cold. It would it would throw off the whole thermal balance of the entire telescope. Is this Lagrange point uh, in the shadow of another planet somehow, or is it uh, again directly in line with the sun? You know, because I would expect in the 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 web, one side of it, the sun side facing it, will be a lot higher higher than the uh, the cold side facing away from it. Right. So the reason that it um, the, the the way it stays cold is they built this incredible what we call a sun shield. It's as large as a tennis court, and there's five of them stacked on top of each other, and that creates a super umbrella that keeps the the part of the telescope that we need cold. It keeps that part cold. Oh, okay. So it it blocks or diffuses the radiation from the sun, and then. The coldness of space that's it's keeping temperature because things are able to radiate away without this this tremendous heat input exactly or radiation input okay got it yep and, and then um in our solar system i don't even know if this question makes sense but it looks like you know again all the planets are kind of in a you know in a plane so is the james webb looking up out of the plane down out of the plane out to the edge of the plane or it has all those areas that it could look but like like out of um you know, 360 degree view, what is its potential field of view? And what are its, you know, what percentage, what number of degrees can it can not look at? Yeah, I'd have to pull up the exact graphic. That's a good question. It's something like one third. You can imagine a cone looking outward, right? Um, including the ecliptic, which is where all the planets are circling. And so you create this cone and uh, you're able to point the telescope, up, you know, slightly upward, slightly downward, and then outward. And as the Earth and the telescope move around the sun, you're able to get different areas, you know, of the sky. So if you can't look at anywhere in the sky at any given time, but you are always able to see some part of the sky at least once a year. Is it, you know, some planets are tidally locked. I guess that, you know, on one side's always facing the sun. Yeah. What happens with the web? Is it, uh, is it locked in a position or because it's at a Lagrange point? It needs to be readjusted, you know, its orientation periodically. Yeah, because of that position, it it's pretty stable. It's sort of like if you had a marble at the top of, you know, at the bottom of, um, I don't know, like, you know, some a bucket or something. It's pretty stable there. That said, over time, there is drag. There's still a little bit of friction in space. As it's zipping along around, you know, all the orbits aren't exactly perfect. And so it does sometimes come out of balance. And when it does, we just use thrusters and put it back in balance. Hmm, Okay. Is it it use uh, solar power? How is it powered? Uh, No, it has fuel. And so that's one of the, I mean, I forget the exact uh, type of fuel that it uses, but it uses, you know, um, a typical rocket fuel. And it has thrusters, you know, all satellites have thrusters to keep them in orbit and to move them around. And Webb has the same thing. It's a telescope that basically sits on a satellite or, you know, a spacecraft. And and so that is one of the limiting mission, um, um, limiting parts of the mission. Uh, When we run out of fuel to control the spacecraft, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to keep it up in orbit any longer. And so we expect that's going to be about 15 or 20 years. Well, what's the plan? Can a, a craft retrieve it or can it use like its last bit of fuel to thrust its way out of the Lagrange point so it can be picked up or it'll go somewhere? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know what their exact plan is. Uh, you know, in 15 or 20 years, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, retrieve it or we might be able to develop some sort of crazy technology to refuel it even, which, you know, they left the gas tank on it. Um, refueling is possible. We don't have the technology now, but maybe we will in 15, you know, 20 years. But if if that doesn't happen, I think it might just end up drifting off in space. But I, I don't know their exact plans to, with it, to be honest. And then uh, out of the images, you know, you referenced Jupiter, Jupiter which was a really, really cool one. Uh, yeah. I don't know. What was your favorite image or images that have come so far from the James Webb? And, you know, what did it show you and other astronomers? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. So. I don't know if you saw, if the listeners, you know, one thing to get across on months ago, Webb released these five beautiful, you know, huge images, um, and they're just spectacular. My favorite out of them was this uh, object called the Carina Nebula, and uh, the colors are just amazing. And this is where stars are being born. There's a, um, and, and what they're doing is as they are being born, they're ionizing and pushing with their light radiation, the gas and the clouds around them, creating effectively a bubble. And you're able to see all of the incredible detail in the wisp and, 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 the, and the structure in this bubble uh, due to the you know, presence in, of all these different stars. And so you see this dusty sort of red and orange half of the image and this blue and white and bright, you know, other half of the image. And there's so much dynamics in just this still image. It's fascinating. So that's probably my favorite. I bought a copy of it to hang in my office. Um, but there, even since then, there's just been uh, so many other fun images that came out yesterday. There was this new press release image called the Tarantula Nebula which, I mean, it was, I've never seen such detail. Uh, this is one of the most famous objects in astronomy, and the detail here was just amazing. We've gotten images already of new planets that we've never seen before around other stars in other solar systems. Um, we have found supernovae in the infrared where there's dust being formed, the supernovae are decades old. They should have long disappeared, right? They're, they're dead. The star died. It, it fell apart. And uh, we're finding the supernova are still glowing in the infrared because they're forming dust. So, you know, every week there's something new and exciting going on. And you really, if you're not doing it, you got to follow the James Webb Space Telescope on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, social media. And you'll see these new pictures every single week. Is the Hubble getting jealous and now putting out more pictures because the uh, web's hogging the attention? <laughs> the Hubble, you know, there, you know, you can ask different people. I think there might be a little jealousy, but Hubble is doing so good. It is still working and producing so much great science. And the Hubble team, who is also at the Space Telescope Science Institute where I work. Uh, is still putting out incredible images on a regular basis. And I can tell you that because I follow, you know, I know the people working on them and I follow the press releases and they're doing, you know, really just fine for themselves. So I don't think there's a lot of jealousy. It's a lot of excitement. Two great telescopes teaming up, working hand in hand, doing great science. 
Well, I would guess the Hubble can tell Webb where to look to get additional data, and then Webb can tell Hubble, oh, look, we found this thing that wasn't seen before. Use your Get your eyes on it. Let's see what you can see. Yep. I mean, there's not much more to say than that. That's exactly how it works, and that's how it's supposed to work. Are, are there any um, like upgrades to the, the web that could be flown out there and attached, or is that like a nightmare to do? There's definitely no option for a serviceable mission. For the Hubble, the way they designed this is in the telescope, they compartmentalized it so that the NASA astronauts could go up there and replace the modules with new modules. There is no module like that on the web. All the instruments are buried deep in the heart of the instrument. This goes back to the fact that they need this cooling, right? They need to be protected. And uh, astronauts currently can't even go out to Lagrangian orbit. So robots maybe, but even in that case, the design of the instrument would just be too difficult to insert new instruments. Uh, so this is what we've got. And so uh, we're really glad that everything's working after commissioning and uh, we're looking forward to the next, you know, 15 or 20 years. Yeah. At the, at, again, you, you probably don't know, but at the Lagrange point, I look, is it true like microgravity or true zero gravity situation? Like as the web was maneuvered towards the Lagrange point, once it reached it, you know, I guess it was, it was, well, it's, it's always going to be affected by gravity, I guess, but it's equally affected so that it's not going to move. But um, does that cause any stability problems with the structure? Did it have to adapt somehow once it got to the point, you know, to relieve stresses or was stress relieved by reaching that point? Yeah. So, you know, modeling the gravitational structure there was one of the most difficult things uh, for the for for the engineers before launch. Because the gravitational pull on the spacecraft, you can imagine it's pulling all the creaks and joints. And so that actually can affect how well your observatory performs. If one of your lever arms or, you know, stability arms is pulled a little bit to the right, you know, uh, that can offset one of your optical structures. So you, you, this is all very important. And that's a good question. They did their best. And as it turned out, their model was good. But, it, but the gravitational scenario when they actually got there was even better than their models predicted. And what that did was it meant that the stresses on the system were lower than they anticipated. And so the performance of the telescope ended up being better than the engineers expected. Oh, that's good. Okay. And what about space debris? Does it tend to avoid the Lagrange points or does it get attracted to them and stuck in a well? Well, uh, the, 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 the debris is flying at a high enough velocity that, you know, the well doesn't affect it too much. But I can tell you that they've been doing studies of this for years uh, in anticipation of the web. There's other satellites actually out at Lagrange, Lagrange Point for this exact same reason. And so they have a pretty good understanding of uh, all sorts of type of space debris and micrometeorites and things like that. That said, it's no secret, it was, a big, it was a big news item a couple months ago. A substantially large uh, micrometeorite did strike one of the mirrors. Um, this is within the range of micrometeorite sizes that were expected to hit the telescope, but they didn't think it was going to hit the telescope of something of this size. They anticipated you know, something during the first year hitting it of this size would be like a chance of one in a million. So that was quite a surprise. 
they are wondering, you know, did they underestimate the, the, the you know, their predictions or was this really just a, a freak statistic? And so they're still working on that. And uh, I do expect that they're going to release a report and an updated analysis of what they might be expecting in, in that orbit uh, going forward. Hmm. And do you know how approximately how big of an area of space the uh, Grange point is, or this particular one is? How big of um, uh, an area the 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 area of the Lagrange point itself, and like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah is how, it huge? Is it is it just big enough to fit only a few satellites? Is it or is it enormous? Yeah, I I really have no grasp on that. I know there's a few satellites there, so you know it's not like an inch, right? And so you know, I would guess it's probably um, I would I would just make up you know a couple you know a few miles or something like that, but I really don't know. I'd have to look that up. Okay. Well, very good. Or is it's really great to talk to you about this. So again, where can people go? I've, I've seen images that are supposedly from James Webb, but they also seem to be making their way onto a lot of like ancillary sites, spam sites, etc. Where can people go to get the the true images? Like as soon as they come out, what are some of the best places on the web to find it? You know, I got to tell you, some the, the data go public, right? And so the community has some incredible people. You know, we have a press release office of a few people. And I, and I got to say that they do a great job, but there are images that they don't get to. And so, you know, there's a lot of great public images out there that are done by the community, some professionals, some amateurs. Um, and there are so many fun Reddit channels that I definitely, you know, encourage people to look up the James Webb Space Telescope on Reddit. That's a great source. But the official channels are where you're going to see some of the most magnificent pictures and so that really is following the James Webb Space Telescope on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. My uh, handle is Fox underscore Ori. Should be pretty simple. That's my name, Ori Fox. And I will often link to all of these sources. So if you forget, but you just follow me, I'll also always link to some of the most exciting sources out there. Okay, and Ori is O-R-I, right? Correct. Okay, very good. Ori, thanks so much for coming. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. It was great. And uh, if you have any follow-up questions, you know, feel free to contact me. And that's true for fans as well. I always enjoy taking questions. So thanks for having me, and um, I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.